Hello, this is Michael Zuber, and I wanted to thank you for choosing to spend a little time with One Rental at a Time. My life's mission is to help investors close 1 million rental properties. In order to tackle this crazy goal, I will need your help. If you like this episode or any of the content we produce, please share it on social media. If you get one of my books or perhaps one of our 500 cards, please take a selfie and tag One Rental at a Time. Now on with the show. This young man certainly does not need an introduction, but we are certainly going to give him one. This is Simon from Uneducated Economist and the keynote speaker on day one of the ORAT Las Vegas event on February 17th and 18th. A, he's agreed to come out. B, he's agreed to be a keynote speaker. And uh, we are so honored to have you there, Simon. Thank you so much. Wow, Mike, thank you. It's an honor to do this. I mean, to to be invited to come down and speak anywhere, let alone to come down and you know join such a great group like uh, like you have with the one rental at a time kind of kind of aspect of it. Man, I am super looking forward to this. So thank you very much for the invite. I got to tell you, of all my guests on the channel uh, who aren't regulars, right? There are some people that come back every week, as you know. You were the number one requested presenter. Uh, so when I reached out, when I reached out, I'm like. There's no chance Simon's going to say yes. He's so busy. And you said yes within 30 minutes of me asking, uh, which is pretty awesome. I just want to thank you for me to you for that and uh, pretty amazing stuff. Uh, so yeah. let's get into it. You have been really on something uh, on your channel, which I watch religiously. But let's step back and define it first for my audience who may not have heard of it about credible threats and specifically credible threats. Uh, for the Federal Reserve. So define what a credible threat is and let's start start digging in because I don't think a lot of people see what is happening. Yeah, credible threat theory. This is um, this is one that takes a while. It goes back a ways, right? To really truly understand what the credible threat theory is about. Ultimately, the credible threat theory is when the Federal Reserve puts out the forward guidance that has the markets believing that they are going to behave in a particular way that then gets the markets to act as if the Federal Reserve has already done something. And we are experiencing this big time right now with the dropping of interest rates at the end of 2024. Now, where I got this credible threat theory from really steps back all the way to the early 2000s with the Ben Bernanke speech where he's talking about deflation and how to prevent it from ever taking place here in the United States. Because this was really the major problem for the Federal Reserve. A lot of people don't think that because, you know, we're very like, even I myself have a tendency to do this. We're very short view, right? We only see like kind of what's happening right now. And we think, oh, my gosh, this is this is everything, right? But really, it's a very long process that has taken place. And the Federal Reserve's major problem that they were experiencing is that they really couldn't get the inflation that they were expecting. I mean, even after the quantitative easing of one, two, three, and four, after the great financial crisis, the decade after that, the Federal Reserve barely achieved their 2% target. A couple of times they were able to get there, got it a little bit over, but for the most part, they failed to achieve the 2% target over that 10 years you know, after the great financial crisis. And this was their problem. They could not find inflation. And now it gets even deeper than this because really when you think about what the problem was as far as the low neutral interest rate and the Fed funds rate and all this stuff kind of hitting the lower bound of zero, this starts getting very complicated in its own, right? But if we take it back just a little bit to understand that the Federal Reserve had lost their monetary policy when they get to zero, but that's okay because they have the credible threat, 
right? right? Now, the credible threat, the easiest way to understand it is through a little story of a guy who invents a gold machine, right? So we imagine a guy, he invents a gold machine with this gold machine. He can produce as much gold at will, very little cost or energy going into it. And the moment that this information gets out to the markets, the price of gold would immediately start to plummet, right? Correct. Even before the guy produces a single ounce of gold or even has the machine to do it, mm -hmm. just the credible threat alone is enough to start moving the markets. And this is definitely what the monetary policy, the, 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 most prominent monetary policy coming from the Federal Reserve is this credible threat. Now, a good example of the credible threats from even during the great, you know, or during the pandemic is when they set up a special purpose vehicle to backstop the corporate debt. This was a really important one. They had 13 lending facilities. There was all kinds of news about all this stuff, but there was one in particular. Just one, this one, I mean, there was all kinds of them, but the one in particular, the corporate debt lending facility, they had established this special purpose vehicle, which is an entity that's separated from the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with, well, it does have something to do with them, but it's an entity that is separated away mm -hmm. from a special purpose vehicle. They set that up with hundreds of billions of dollars and then put out the narrative that they were going to be buying corporate debt. And this gets really confusing, but just that that message going out to the media that they were going to be front or that they were going to be buying this corporate debt got the markets to start front running the Federal Reserve, thinking that they yeah. bought into the corporate debt, they would be able to then sell it to the Federal Reserve as they go into this process of buying corporate debt. That information alone was enough to get the markets to go out there and start supporting corporate debt. Corporate debt yields fell and corporations gorged on incredibly cheap debt and the Federal Reserve sat back and didn't do anything. They bought a anything. little bit of corporate debt, yeah. but they hardly, right, they hardly bought any. And this You're is right. this is the credible threat theory. It kind of wrapped up in a nutshell. It's complicated, no, but really it's... when you start thinking about it, it's not. It's it's pretty simple. You know, you just put out the forward guidance on what you're going to do, and the markets believe it, and they start mm -hmm. acting as if it's already happened. Yeah, it's funny. I love the idea of a credible threat. What I've told my audience for years is the Fed only has two tools. There is their every six-week meeting where they make a decision on rates. But then I always say it's their voice. What are they trying to communicate to the audience? And again, we have to realize there's 18 members. They all have their own voice. They all say their own things. But when they give out their forward guidance, maybe some people call it the dot plot, they have to know that that item will cause market reaction. And mm -hmm. boy, did the dot plot this time cause a market reaction. That's right. And we also kind of have to understand what it is that that dot plot is. It's going off of the current conditions that they are experiencing right now. Like if this was to continue, right? Correct. Now you start throwing something in there, you know, you throw a war into it, you throw like some kind of disruption to the financial system, something or other, then that dot plot begins to change, right? Mm -hmm. But this is off of the current projections from what they are experiencing within the economy today. They're seeing the inflation come down. They're seeing all this other stuff. But if we start running into issues where all of a sudden, say, you have like, you know, the manufacturers of the world have slowed down and you start having issues with new products coming into the United States over the next couple of years, you might find where inflation starts to come back. All of a sudden, that dot plot starts to change, you know, and this is, again, like it's 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 more of what they are seeing taking place today. And it's not all of them. It's just, you know, it's a handful of them. Some of them don't. Some of them don't see any change. Like they anticipate that, you know, there's not going to be any change to the to the interest rates all the way into like 2025 sometime, you know? Yeah. And, it's, it's and really, so that's. I think it's funny, Simon. The market has a very short term memory. 
What do I mean yeah. by that? Uh, the dot plots have not been particularly accurate. Uh, if you remember where we were uh, pre, I think it was May or June of last year when we were still at the lower bound, the last dot plot had rates going up 50 or 75 basis points. Yeah. And of course, we know they then started their, you know, after Jackson Hole, the, the fastest rate rise in history, 500 basis points or 525 basis points. So I think it's really odd that the market um, has taken such a really uh, almost violent yeah. movement, right? 100 basis points, 150 basis points um, because of the dot plot. Because again, it, they've not, they're, they're, their batting average sucks. They're yeah. not good at this. So, um, but yeah, boy, you, you, you talk about three rate cuts and suddenly the market wants six. Yeah. It's, uh, it's wild. Yeah. And now, and one of the things, like, I just have to like, cause I'm not the big time investor, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not really into a lot of stuff that a lot of people would be normally into when you have this kind of like, you know, I don't even know what hobby, I don't even know what to call what I do, you know, I mean, <laughs> so it's like, you know, <laughs> But, you know, I step back and I just kind of look at things for just a minute and just kind of just be objective about the whole thing. And it was just like, you know, the Federal Reserve generally doesn't drop interest rates unless there's bad economic times taking place. Like, that's just something to just kind of be aware of. It's like people are like, look at good times coming with the low interest rates. And I'm like, you know, I mean, you look at history, that's not usually the case. Right? Yeah, you know, yeah. So I wouldn't yeah, wish for low interest rates because that's usually meaning that there's issues taking place that are not comfortable. Right. Yeah. Um, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. The other thing is, is like a lot of people are looking at the Federal Reserve like they're supposed to be in charge of like making sure that markets continue to operate in a, in a good fashion or something. I don't I don't understand that. The Federal Reserve is really mandated to do two things, low and stable prices and full employment. That's it. That's the only thing they're, they're not mandated to make sure an election goes a particular way or that a market goes a particular way or anything like that. None of none, that's like anything that I've ever read from the Federal Reserve. They do not take any of that stuff into consideration. But the markets don't believe that. Like, yeah. I mean, the news yeah. doesn't believe There's, that. Nobody, yeah. you know, nobody believes that at all. But you know, yeah. when I look at it from that fashion, I was just like, okay, well, unless the unemployment rises dramatically or, you know, the low and stable prices are no longer low and stable, I don't understand what it is that the Federal Reserve would be needing to do. I right? want to ask they you a question on a that. Yeah. I, I want to see if we can, because um, a lot of people think the Fed, that they think the economy is going to fall off a cliff in 2024 and unemployment is going to spike. I think the last reading on unemployment was 3.7, I believe. What number do you think catches the Fed's attention? Four, four, three, four, five, five percent? What do you what do you what do you think? Because again, 3.7 is historically low. Full employment when I was getting yeah. my degree was six percent. Now it's five percent. Do you do you have a number you think where the Fed goes, ooh, that hurts? Um, I think there used to be. But I don't think the Federal Reserve looks at it like they used, like they did at one time. Oh, See, there was a time okay. that the Federal Reserve would look at the employment and how many people were working or the how many people weren't working in order to adjust the inflation scenario that was taking place into the future. Because if more people are working, more people have money to start spending it into the economy, you got money velocity starting to take place. So if you have low unemployment, that ultimately would start leading into higher inflation. 
right? So if the Federal Reserve was looking for low inflation or high inflation, they would start screwing with the economy in a way that the unemployment would rise or fall, right? In order to create the inflation scenario going into the future that they were projecting or wanting, like that 2% or whatever it was. That was, a lot of people will refer to this as like the Phillips curve, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so the more employment you got, the higher inflation, yep. and then there's this curve too. Okay, so Correct. that's kind of been like, discredited saying that it doesn't work anymore and we kind of see that taking place because really we've had pretty much other than the short period of the pandemic we've had historically low unemployment for a very long time yeah right and it still didn't create the inflation scenario that the federal reserve was looking for even with the low employment towards the end of like say the trump administration or something like that mm -hmm. right yeah. So, you know, I don't know if people remember that we had low unemployment and there was no inflation, right? The Fed should be printing money. This was all coming towards the end of the of the Trump administration during that time. So I don't think the Federal Reserve is really worried about the unemployment like they once were. Like they would want unemployment to rise to bring inflation down. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they look at it like that anymore. They can keep unemployment extremely hot or very, you know, like the jobs market elevated without the risk of running inflation too hot because they've learned that the Phillips curve is no longer applying to the economy like it once did. Yeah. I don't know. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think I so. I think so. Something I've shared in my audience and I do believe is I don't think the fed bats an eye unless unemployment goes above four or five. Right. And, and, and that's, and that's where, yeah. And I would agree like that's, but that's like, that was kind of like the old fed view. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't I, I think now like they were concerned about running labor too hot before. Correct. And creating yes. an inflation scenario. I don't think they're worried about that anymore. They're like, fuck it, just let it run. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cuss. Um, they're like, just okay. screw it. Just let it run hot, you know, yeah. and yeah. and just in all the time. And we don't have to worry about whether or not that's going to create the inflation scenario like we had expected in the past. Um, so like the unemployment rising, this would be like the typical move. For the federal reserve to adjust interest rates like once the unemployment rises and people are like dude this is too painful we can't experience we need to go to work whatever that's when the federal reserve would try and stimulate the economy with the lower of interest rates and then hopefully people would start borrowing money to get the economy moving again and then people would start getting hired mm -hmm. i think now they're they're not worried about that like i think that that kind of fear and trying to manipulate interest rates to adjust the unemployment rate is kind of left their left their Okay. Their strategy. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Uh, I'm curious if the credible threat that's actually happening in the market, i.e., the lowering of, of the 10 year sub four, I think sub three nine, mortgage mm -hmm. rates kind of six six and seeming to be heading lower. Do you think one of the credible threats or the outcome of this might be a reigniting of inflation? Is that something you see out there as a, a possibility? Well, yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. I see this reigniting inflation again. I mean, just the, I mean, just alone, like, I mean, it's hard, you know, I mean, you know more about real estate than I do, that's for sure. But when it comes to like, even just taking the idea of a house right now, like people are saying the homes are unaffordable, right? Interest rates are elevated. If interest rates start to fall, most likely people are going to start being able to make those payments on those homes. How are the prices going to start coming down, right? So inflation starts to take off again in the real estate market. Right? And I mean, this is kind of like, you know, the idea behind it. But even if you take it back into like the bigger macro picture of 
of economics in in general when you think about like the bullwhip effect that is really going mm-hmm. to hit the hit the markets like this is very difficult for a lot of people to see but it was once you kind of understand the bullwhip effect and then if you're especially if you're like in a particular industry that is going through it like i was with the lumber industry it makes it so easy to see mm-hmm. like you're like man all this noise about politics and interest rates and all this stuff it, it, it all of a sudden none of that stuff makes sense. What makes sense is what really is happening, and that is the overproduction or underproduction of a particular item at a time, and then that reflecting back into the prices when the demand starts to pick up or fall. And this is again, it's really difficult to kind of wrap your head around all this because it's like this: the the bullwhip doesn't hit everything within the economy at the same time. It happens right. at different times and at different levels, right? So like mm-hmm. with lumber, it happened years ago. Like lumber, like it found its equilibrium for the last year here. I mean, we've been at 550 per thousand for so long now. It's the boringest commodity in the world. Like people are like, what's the lumber update? And I'm like, I don't know, nothing, you know, like nothing. <laughs> Still you know? I was like, soon as something does, man, I'll be all over it. I promise. But there's like nothing yeah. really happening out there. Yeah. I mean, behind I, the scenes, there is with like inventory depletions. Okay. But again, I think that's due to a lot of the demand that has happened or the lack of demand that is happening out mm-hmm. there, you know, but I, you're going to see prices fluctuate when the when the demand for lumber starts to come back. That's going to take a dropping of interest rates, a serious one, mm-hmm. and one that sparks the builders to want to go out there and start building homes again with the idea that if they could build a home today, they can actually sell it for that price yep. or a higher price going into the future. If that is reversed, where they think that they might end up selling it for a lesser price, in the future, they're going to back off. They're going to be like, well, no way, man. I mean, this yeah. is too dangerous for me. Even if it's like even if there's like the possibility of breaking even or something, that's still not good enough, right? We got to be a profitable business here. Yeah, yeah so, I think this I think this was a story you shared six months ago. It might have been nine. And actually, it was a topic I talked with Lance Lambert, who at the time was at Fortune. Now he's at Resi Club, was with the rising of interest rates, we're going to see the small mom and pop builders just not built. They're like, I'm out. I'm going to keep my money in a savings account, making a money market, making 5%. You know, I'm going to stop projects, not going to build the big boys will because they got a balance sheet and all that stuff. So I'm curious, uh, have you seen any of the smaller builders come back to lumber yard, lumber yard and say, you know what, I'm going to start building or not yet? No, like, um, no. you know, there's a few there's projects going on. So there's always like this is one thing that I had to like, you know, really come to like, you know, to an understanding when I tell people stuff is that there has never been a time in the history of mankind that they weren't trying to put some sort of structure together. Yep. I mean, like whether or not it's a lot of them or a few of them, there's always something happening. Always, right? right? No matter what the condition is. So there's always projects taking place. There are some builders out there doing it. You know, there's going to be profitable ones, ones who knew, recognized, positioned themselves well, you know, they're going to be able to do okay. Those who relied heavily on borrowing money to make their operations work exactly they're, they're not going to do well like they can't nope. like you know all of a sudden like all their money goes to interest payments like it's just like what what's the point right exactly so the the amount of builders out there who build all in cash is very small right and so you have to be a big time builder if you're going to be operating within this kind of environment if you're small time relying on the loans coming in you're you're, you're pretty much out of the game and now this is something interesting to think about because how many homes are actually built out there by the small time builder as opposed to the big time. Now the big time, yeah, they're really noticeable because they have all these homes that they like, they talk about thousands of homes in particular areas or whatever. But really, if you go across the United States, you're gonna find that most of the homes are built by a, by you know the small mom and pop type of, uh, type of builder, 
right? Agreed. And Agreed. it and that's where like really the lack of inventory comes from is that, you know, I was just talking with my mom about this earlier, you know, is that, you know, the when she was a kid, I asked her, I was like, how many people in your community built their own home? Like literally like, you know, physically swung hammers or at least had, you know, the group of people who could do it, but they like physically built their own home. They didn't really go out there and find like a home to build or, or fi find a home that was already built. You're building your own, like you find a piece of land and you do it. And she said a lot of people, like I even remember listening to, you know, a lot of people working at the lumber yard when I was a kid talking about how, you know, they're building their own home. I mean, this was 20 years ago. You know? mm. That doesn't really take place anymore. So like the individual dude who is like just got maybe some carpentry skills who back in like the early 80s could construct their own home can't really do it nowadays with the way the permitting is done and the cost that goes into it and the, you know, the the qualifications for like building building codes and stuff like that are so advanced now that like just the typical guy who had some carpentry skills probably isn't going to be able to build their own home like they used to you know? yeah and so this is another reason why i think there's a lack of inventory out there you no, know, question. Just, no question no yeah. question so we talked about inflation being probably or possibly reignited if rates fell low enough long enough there's actually another talk track that i'm just starting to hear daniel Martino booth brought it up the other day and she's actually calling for 2024 to be a deflationary cycle. And I want, you know, A, do you see deflation out there? Do you see deflation being a, I guess I'll ask you, do you see deflation or inflation is the bigger risk or more likely in 2024? What do you think? Um, I think deflation is probably the biggest risk of the Federal Reserve and maintaining their monetary policy. Um, so okay. I think, more. I mean, like for us as an individual person, if we understand and know what's happening, deflation is a very awesome thing because then all of a sudden we can have more of this purchasing power to buy all this stuff. However, we have to also understand that during a deflationary scenario, that is the economy slowing down. So the idea of being able to start businesses or earn a lot of money or this other stuff, that starts to disappear as well, right? So if you're positioned well ahead of time, well, then everything's on sale. Right. I mean, that's the way to kind of look at it when you go yeah. into a deflationary scenario. So it's really about how you position yourself when that comes. When it comes, to when the Federal Reserve is at the lower bound of zero, they have very little monetary policy left, meaning like trying to stimulate the economy becomes so ineffective that deflation takes hold and they can't stop it. Right. Mm. They can't stimulate the economy anymore. Right. They try with stimulus checks. They drop interest rates. They could even start going into negative interest rates and then find that they cannot get the economy to pick up and start inflating. Right. It's always going into this constant deflationary scenario. And it's really hard to understand that when you think, man, all this money printing, why would there be like deflation with massive amounts of money printing going on there? You just see all these dollars swimming everywhere. And you're like, how could this not possibly create an inflationary scenario? But you also have to understand that there is a like we are not in a hard currency environment. Like if there was gold flying everywhere, then we can understand the inflationary scenario. But what we have flying everywhere is debt. 
It's not money. And we have to understand that. Like the difference between debt and money is, is a huge thing. If gold was flying everywhere, yes, inflationary scenario, but we have debt flying everywhere. That's creating a deflationary scenario, especially when you start getting into lower interest rates. If we had high interest rates, it would be a different story. Low interest rates makes it a deflationary scenario as the return on capital investment becomes negative. This took me a long time to understand. Like I listened to Dr. Lacey Hunt for months before I was able mm -hmm. to finally wrap my head around this. And, it's, and it, once I did, it was like, man, this is simple. Like, I, I don't know why I made it so complicated in my mind. Like I thought it needed to be complicated or something. But if you just think about like getting a return on capital, right? You know, you got a million dollars, like you inherited a million dollars in the early eighties, right? Your uncle died, left you a million dollars. You took that million dollars and you lent it to the United States, right? You bought 10 year treasuries. You would get a return of like $150,000 a year. I mean, that's a decent little return for, you know, lending the government, the buying the safest, most liquid asset in the world, the U.S. Treasuries, right? And all of a sudden now you're getting $150,000 a year in the early 80s for your million dollar investment with them. Man, that's a lot of money to spend into the economy, right? You're buying houses, cars, going on vacation. You're doing all this stuff with this money or even reinvesting it back into the, into, you know, markets or whatever. Point being is that those high interest rates back in the early 80s had the return on capital investment going back into the economy again. Right. Well, now we hit the lower interest rates. We got a 10-year treasury that, well, right now it's at what, you know, four, three or whatever, three, three point nine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a couple of years ago it was that like two, right? One. Yeah. You know? And yeah, so below one for a little bit. Yeah, it was below one. It actually went negative there for for a for a moment. Um, but you think about it, even if you were to get a million dollars, like say then, you invest it with the US government, you buy these US treasuries, the 10 year, the 10 year bond, and now you're getting a return of like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year, or even today it's like thirty nine thousand dollars a year. Yeah. I mean, like thirty nine thousand dollars, I mean a lot of money for a guy who's like got an average nine to five job, but you know, thirty nine thousand dollars isn't that much money. You know, it's really not. And especially for a million dollar investment, right? Yeah. Thirty nine thousand dollars is barely scratching anything. So now the return on capital investment is very low. You can't really go back into the economy with this. And in fact, if you really think about it, if you compare it to the inflation scenario, all of a sudden you've just gone negative. Now you've got a negative return on capital investment. Exactly. That's the deflationary scenario right there, right? That's the deflation that a lot of people can't see when it comes to what is going to be taking place within the broader macro economy. Is yeah. this negative return on capital investment causing a deflationary scenario? This is one of the reasons why the Fed had desperately needed to get in interest rates higher is so they can reverse this little capital investment problem that they had. Yeah. Really what he's highlighting there, folks, is something you and I've talked about called real interest rates. Real quickly, if inflation is nine and interest rates are four, you have a negative real interest rate of five. That's really what Simon was just referring yep. to there. Uh, you know what, Simon? Let's step back. It's right at the end of 2023. I thought maybe we should talk about some surprises of, of 2023, the stuff that did or did not happen uh, from an economics perspective. You and I have been creating content every week, all year. Lots of stuff happened over the year. Anything that jumps out at you as a surprise? Um, you know, not, not really a surprise um, to me. But I think it might have been a lot of surprise to a lot of other people. And I think that's probably the real estate prices. Like everybody knew, like knew. In fact, I even said it too. Once the interest rates go up, these house prices are going to crash, right? 
I mean, it was one of the biggest fears that I had even buying my house. Cause like, I mean, I you know, like you, you watched, I mean, it was two years ago. I was pulling my hair. I didn't know whether or not I was like, you know, yeah, doing the right thing, wrong thing. And I just like felt like I had no other choice and, you know, but really what ended up happening, right? Prices did come down some, but they didn't like, you know, crash to, you know, they didn't plummet to like, you know, these ungodly low prices and everybody thought that they were going to go. Right. And I think a lot of times people thought, you know, once the Federal Reserve starts to unwind their balance sheet, like unloading these mortgage-backed securities, mm -hmm. that that was going to cause interest rates to just go skyrocketing, right, yeah. on these mortgages, and that people wouldn't be able to afford it. There would be like this flood of mortgage-backed securities out there. The price of them would fall, and the yields on them would rise. So, you know, I don't know if you talk much about the mortgage-backed security market or stuff mm -hmm. like that, but, you know, for those who don't quite understand it, you know, a mortgage-backed security is like a box with a bunch of mortgages in it, and an investor buys that group of, of mortgages, right? Now, it gets more complicated than that when you start breaking it up into tranches and stuff like that, but that's ultimately what it is, is a bundle of mortgages. So these mortgage-backed securities, it creates a pool within itself, right? So it's a market. There are investors who want to buy mortgage-backed securities, right, besides just the Federal Reserve. I mean, it's a fixed, you know, it's like fixed-income investors who are looking for a steady return. Generally, most people make their mortgage payments. So, you know, buying mortgage-backed securities is actually a fairly decent investment for a lot of people, especially if you're looking for that fixed income, right? Well, now, this is the idea. The Federal Reserve was unloading the mortgage-backed securities. It's going to flood this market. There's going to be all these mortgage-backed securities out there. The price of them is going to fall and the yields are going to rise. Now, what ended up really happening is, is that when the interest rates started to move up, the refinancing market disappeared. Boom. Yep. Nobody's refinancing anymore. Now, this was a major contributor to the pool of mortgage-backed securities. As the interest rates were falling, people were refinancing their loan. Yep. That destroys the first loan, reestablishes a new one, and a new mortgage-backed security to go mm -hmm. into the market. Right. So now there was all this flood of mortgage-backed securities coming into the market during the time of low interest rates and during a time when the Federal Reserve was also picking those things up. But now we're sitting in a different situation. Right. That pool of mortgage-backed securities coming from the refinancing has pretty much disappeared. New home loan generation is still like being generated today has fallen dramatically as the home yep. sales have fallen. So that pool of mortgage-backed securities is shrinking. Right. Just like any supply and demand out there, if you have a shrinking supply and you have a demand for it, eventually it finds its equilibrium. And that's right. one of the reasons why the interest rates didn't continue to go up is because the lack of mortgage-backed securities that were being produced compared to the amount of demand coming from the investors out there looking to get them. And I don't think a lot of people took that into consideration. You know, It was something that I had mentioned. I didn't know if that was going to actually happen, but it seemed like a logical scenario to me as the refinancing pretty much disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. One thing one thing that we got right on this channel is I called the transaction crash, not a price crash. Boy, people got irritated with me, all the crash bros and doomers. I will admit one thing I got wrong. I didn't see interest rates hitting 8%. I didn't think that would happen. It did for a moment. I thought the year would end in the sixes. You know, we're back there now. Uh, but yeah, I didn't see 8%. Well, I honestly didn't think the Federal Reserve would get their Fed funds rate up above two and a half percent. Right. Mm. Personally, I mean, that was that. I mean, so I was a bit surprised by that one. Um, OK, yeah. But then I also think about it from the lag that takes place. Right. Because yeah. a lot of like this is probably one of the reasons why I missed it in this sense is because like. 
I, I, it's hard to incorporate what the lag is going to do to the economy and at what point does it actually start to impact the economy. So you think about it, like the lag is anywhere, like some people say that there's like three months to six months. Other economists say that the lag is anywhere from a year to 18 months, right? Yeah, so from the time that, that the, yeah, from the time the Fed actually moves their interest rates, right? And that when they actually move the Fed funds rate, from that point, that date, Anywhere from six months to a year and a half down the road is when it starts to actually impact the economy. So mm-hmm. if we take today's date and we go back six months to a year and we look at what the Fed funds rate were, or even 18 months ago, we would find that they're still quite low. Oh, right? yeah. You're like right. the Fed funds yes. rate that's actually impacting the economy today is a very low Fed funds rate, right? Due yeah, to the lack. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And so and I, that's something that, we, that I think shows up big time. That lag is coming. And that, it, it's funny we, we got to here uh, because we're talking about 2023. 2024, I think people are going to be shocked at how fast inflation falls. I think a lot of oh, the shelter inflation is miscalculated or misrepresented because of the way it's calculated. And I, th- I think, and I've said on record that I think CPI will be below 2% by June. Yeah. Um. And I could see that. I mean, I could see I could see that there is going to be, you know, some some serious slowdown taking place within the economy, you know, and especially when it comes to a lot of the prices that we had seen moving so dramatically, dramatically fast. Um, I, I but I think that's going to be kind of I, I, I think that's going to be kind of false hope that's going into that at that time, you know, um, it's going to be like people are going to say like, wow, look at things have really changed or whatever. But really what they're seeing, again, is probably some effects of the bullwhip effect happening in there. Yep. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. See, we have to we have to kind of understand what's what's taking place because I didn't really go in clearly into what was happening during the bullwhip effect. When items fall, like during the pandemic, we had this huge crunch in supply. Right. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, like there was nothing available out there, you know, and like hyperinflation was amongst everybody's mind as they weren't able to find anything and the prices were moving up. This was a lack of supply moving through the system, but this was done to a severing of the supply chain. It was like a self-inflicted wound that was happening there, right? And, and it's much different from a lack of production that was happening. It's it's the same effect on the economy in the sense that if you can't get the material through the system, then the outcome on the retail side of things is the same as if you didn't produce it. The only problem is, is that that items was produced. They were just being held back, right? So now. This is really what what ends up happening is that when those items fall and the prices move up, right, the demand coming from the retail side of things starts sending orders over to the manufacturers, right? And now all of a sudden, manufacturers are looking and saying, oh, my gosh, overwhelming consumer demand is taking place right now. But it's not really overwhelming consumer demand. It's the fact that they have all this damned up, you know, supply that is not making it through the system, causing the orders to rise, right? Mm -hmm. So now… All of a sudden, manufacturing's over there looking at this overwhelming consumer demand, so they start ramping up production, right? They ramp up all this production to try and fulfill this demand. Supply all of a sudden starts coming through the system again, and then all of a sudden, boom, here comes the stuff, and the orders begin to fall. Mm-hmm. Now we have orders over at manufacturing, you know, basically like in China, and they're they're failing. Like manufacturers are like, like what do we do? You know, there's no orders coming in. Well, all this stuff is now trying to make its way through the system, okay? You have economic slowdown taking place. People don't want the bicycle anymore. They don't want the, all those dishes. They don't want the, you know, all these things, you know, that had this high demand during the pandemic. So now all this stuff is sitting here in the system, right? 
manufacturing slows, slows, slows until eventually there's nothing being produced to go into the system. However, before that took place, when that low supply was there and the high orders came in, investments started pouring in to manufacturing, malinvestment. Right, malinvestment means that it should never have happened in the first place. It's going to be over overpriced interest rates on whatever loan that they were going into because they had these projections of high prices happening. Mm -hmm. You can see it taking place in like the pork industry and the chicken industry yep. right now as well. You know, um, and like I said, these things happen at different times. It was easy for me to see, you know, with lumber because I was in it. So now this is what we can expect is that these manufacturers who have invested all this money and time and resources into production no longer has the demand there. They shut down. Yep. Right? Yeah. And, and then we'll once that practice. material makes it through the system and there's no manufacturers of it, what happens? Prices mm -hmm. start to move up. This is the real shortages that are going to happen. Not, not fake shortages due to a self-inflicted wound of supply chain breakdown, right? Mm -hmm. But actual shortages due to the fact that nothing was manufactured. Gotcha. or less like stuff it. was manufactured. Yeah. So when you look at 2024 and how we're exiting 2023, do you think there's a chance the Fed can stick a soft landing? Do you, do you foresee a, a shallow and short recession? Do you see something deeper and darker out there? How do you think the economy is set up for, for 2024? Any thoughts? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I've done videos on this too. And I just did one recently. It's called the Recessionless Recession. Right. And how like most of the time, as we understand a recession, there's two things that we hate the most about a recession. Right. We lose our job and they bail out the corporations. Yeah. Right. And that and that's like that's it. Like anything else after that, people really don't care. They, they don't want to lose their job and they don't want to see corporations get bailed out. Yep. So what if we go into a situation in which that the Federal Reserve isn't worried about people losing their job. Like we kind of talked about this already. Like they're, yep. they're not worried about, you know, having a hot labor market. So they're cool with this, you know, with this mm -hmm. hot labor market. So people may not lose their job. They may not have the job they want. Like, this is another thing. Like, you know, right. they may not, like they, you know, they may not want to serve burgers, but there's a job there serving burgers. So it may not be the job you want. Right. But there's mm -hmm. a job available. And that's the difference. I think that a lot of people, you know, kind of misunderstand about the the jobs market out there. You know, they're like, no, I want a hundred thousand dollar job. Of course, everybody does. But that's not the job that's available. Right. There are jobs available that is pay less. So the unemployment is not something that the Federal Reserve is concerned about. And we already kind of addressed the idea with the corporate debt lending facility on how they already bailed out the corporations during the pandemic. So if they're not worried about unemployment or people losing their jobs and the corporations have already been bailed out maybe that is the soft landing right yeah. i mean is maybe. this it i mean if we don't have to experience those two things then we may have the recessionless recession right? there you go and i'm not saying like they they stuck it or they did a good job on it this is something like i think they had planned a long time ago like a lot of people don't even know that we went through a recession during the pandemic like the right. pandemic induced recession, that's 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 BS. It was a recession that was taking place regardless of the pandemic. It's just that everything got blamed on the pandemic. There was a very different story on that, you know. Oh yeah, we were in late 2019. You know, we were headed there. I actually made I'm I sold an apartment building in late 19 because I thought we were going into a recession. Yeah. Um, you know, in hindsight, I lost a million bucks because I sold early and didn't know a pandemic was coming. But I still feel good about the decision. Um, yeah, it was the right decision with the information I had at the time. So that's uh, yeah. yeah, pretty crazy. Um, well, and, and that's, you know, and that's just the the thing about like, you know, 
pretty much everything that we find from the Federal Reserve, right, is that if you look back on a lot of their stuff, like even when it came to the liquidity crisis that was taking place in 2019 towards the end, the one that we were, you know, thinking that was going to be causing this recession, they had been putting out information for months and months and months and months ahead of time. Right. Talking about having to have a facility dealing with the liquidity issues that were going to be coming to the banking system. It wasn't a surprise. Like they knew they did, I mean, they may not have known exactly when and how and and, mm -hmm. you know, the little details of what exactly was going to force it. But they knew the situation was coming because they talked about it. I did a yeah. video called Things Are Changing, talking about the repo facility months ahead of the 2019, September 2019 liquidity issue that hit. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, so. Although it was a big surprise for everybody, it, I don't think that was necessarily a big surprise for the Federal Reserve, right? They popped open with that repo facility and immediately started non-QE, QE, right, where they yeah. were swapping treasuries for cash. So it, it, it's, it wasn't like, I don't know, like to me that, although it was a surprise for the news, for the markets, for everything, I don't think that was a surprise for the Fed. Yeah. Same thing with like, you know, the the Silicon Valley bank failure, you know? Yeah. I think it's, they were like that day, bank term funding program, here you go. Like they knew it. Like they wouldn't have had that bank term funding program sitting on the shelf waiting to be deployed if they didn't know that the situation was coming, right? I mean, so. Yeah, yeah. I they didn't, didn't know which bank, but they had to, They certainly had a tool ready to deploy. Yeah. Right. And that was pretty cool. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, I don't, I don't, like a lot of times when I speak, I don't want people to think like I'm on the Fed side, like I'm some shill for the Fed. Like that's not what I'm about here. You know, no. I'm just a dude trying to figure the stuff out, trying to position myself in the best way I can. And from what I've learned about the Federal Reserve and what I hear coming out on the mainstream media are completely different. Like they yeah. are not the same thing, you know? And so when I speak, I speak on behalf of the Fed strategy. Like this is what the Fed is doing. Like I don't think it's a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. I just think it is and is, you know, and how I have to deal with it. You know? Yeah, one thing I'm seeing a lot of talk about is the M2 money supply. The <laughs> fact that the M2 money supply is going, you know, is negative, right? It's been going down for, you know, quarters now. Also, uh -huh. the fact that people want to spin it as it hasn't done this since the Great Depression. They want to make those connections. Um, what, what do you think about the M2 money supply uh, falling? Is is it leading us to a Great Depression or is it, you know, hey, guys, zoom out. It, it was crazy for the last year or so. Um, yeah, you have to really zoom out on this one. M, yeah. You know, there's. It's 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 become so overwhelming, it's hard to even wrap your mind around it. It was just like, man, how much money even really exists out there in the world? Exactly. And like how is like, you know, is like is this locked up in the banking system? Is it out there for people to use? How much is paper currency as opposed to bank reserves? And they're like, you know, it starts making your mind spin. Yeah. Um I agree. What really it comes down to is demand for for the currency. That's 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 the at the end of the day, that's really what it is. How many people really want the dollar or don't want the dollar, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. when you hear like news out there of things like the BRICS nations abandoning the dollar or getting out, okay, very true. Like there is very little doubt in my mind about that, right? Mm -hmm. However, we also have to take into, take into consideration how many debts are actually written in dollars that don't have anything to do with the United States. Like nothing, yeah. like it doesn't have anything to do with our government, our banks, our corporations, our people, nothing. Like it doesn't have a single thing to do with the United States at all in any way, shape or form, except that these nations, these corporations and these people outside of the United States have written debts due in dollars. Yep. Right. 
This is a very big thing because like I had like when I first started studying the economy, especially the American economy, I would keep it isolated to our borders, but not thinking about the world reserve currency and how much demand for that world reserve currency is. We hear the BRICS nations say they're abandoning dollars, but yet you can go and find where many nations around the world are still writing debts due in dollars today. Right. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you go and you look at what would take place if people really wanted to get out of the dollar is what they would have to do is they would have to try and inquire as many dollars as that they could in order to pay off those debts, those dollar denominated debts that are out there. So in order to even close those debts out, there's going to be a demand for dollars. Mm -hmm. Right. And those debts far outweigh how many dollars exist out there. So there's no way that all the dollars can pay off all those debts that have been written. Right. So somebody's not getting paid. Right? That's yeah, something, exactly. one thing to think about on it. Here's another thing to think about. Those debts are being used as if they're dollars too, mm-hmm. right? Not only do you oh, have yeah. the dollars out there, but then you have these debts that were written that are also getting used as dollars. So how much dollar transactions are actually taking place out there? A yeah. lot, a, a whole lot, lot yeah. right? Yeah, the death, the the death of the dollar has been greatly exaggerated. Right, years. so yeah. now if you were to pay off all these debts, if we were to just say, hey, get out of the dollar, whatever, I really honestly don't think that the Federal Reserve could print at a pace that is fast enough to do it. Yeah. Which is something scary to think about on its own, right? Yeah, yeah. So how does this hyperinflation scenario end up working with this? Like this M2 money supply, as it starts to shrink, you know, people are getting worried about that. Well, I wouldn't stress it out too much because really what would end up happening as far as like a hyperinflation or a deflation of, of the money supply actually impacting the economy would be the flow of money coming back to the United States, right? Mm-hmm. That would be the biggest concern about it. And until you have a situation in which that the dollar has been completely abandoned and now they have to have do something with these dollars and that's to spend it back in the United States, that scenario situation, I don't see it. I don't see yeah. anywhere in sight that that's coming or even remotely close to being there yet. Yeah, when so I the hear M2 about money it. supply, yeah, the M two money supply to me is really more about a pulling back of the reserves out of the banking system, as much yeah. as it is was trying to like slow down the amount of dollars that are out there in the economy. You know what I mean? It's just like yeah. it's it's to me more this is like a banking system withdrawal of reserves going back to the Federal Reserve, I, I, and not I really agree like more. yeah, and not really I like the it, yeah. If you take the M two money supply and again you zoom out. There was a trend line it's been on for a hundred years. And if you step back and look at 2020 and 2021, it deviated from that trend line by three or four factors. And yes, we've gone negative the last nine months, but we're not back to trend, right? Yeah. Um, but everybody wants to say, because it makes great headlines, not since the Great Depression has M2 money to supply decline. I'm like, guys, zoom out. The last two years were astronomical. Right. So, you know, yeah, and you if you to... think about it, you know, if you think about it from that fashion that I was talking about, like as as the world starts running into liquidity issues, like there's not enough dollars out there. We don't know if we're going to be able to pay off all these debts or anything. And all of a sudden, the, the Federal Reserve just floods the world with all these dollars. Right. And now people are like, oh, OK, well, I guess I'm not so worried about paying off these debts anymore. Right. A- a- again, it's like a psychological trick. Like I think QE is nothing more than a psychological impact on money printing that has on people like. All, like all the scenarios, all the media, all the coverage that they have of what printing money does to inflation, I think that was their 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 whole goal was just to create that expectation, like, you know, regardless of anything else. Interesting, interesting. 
So I do have a question for you because you stepped into the housing market. I think it was 2021. Uh, you picked up your your owner occupied house. You got mm -hmm. a very low interest rate, obviously. Uh, the thing that I am wondering about when I think 2024 housing and really 2025 housing is when does supply come back? And I want to ask you as an individual, how low would rates have to go before you would even consider selling your house and upgrading? Is there a number on the interest rate where you would start to consider trading up? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take this one back to, uh, what my buddy, Mike Zuber, had told me one time, does the numbers work? <laughs> does the, does, does the numbers work in the box? You know, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what I'm going to go with. I don't think I have a set number on that. Um, as far as what I would be willing to do, like I could not buy my house right now at the interest rates that they are at. Like I could right. not get approved for it. So today. today. Yep. So that makes me feel pretty fortunate to be where I'm at, right? And if that if that's what I'm feeling, then most likely I'm probably not feeling like I should be looking at anything else or or worried about anything else at this time. So in my opinion, at three and a quarter percent interest rates at the at the position that I am in, and considering that I wouldn't be able to buy the house, I feel like no, I would not be moving anywhere. I would be yeah. stuck in this house right now. Even if I didn't like the house, I don't know if I would be able to even move. So yeah. like, even if I wanted to, you know, um, and so what that's is the like, house up, what's the house up? Is it up 10, 20% from when you bought it or uh, uh, let's see here. It is up right now. It's up about a little, maybe a little over 10%. Okay. Now what's scary about it is, is that the price of it has like, obviously these Zillow estimates are just kind of, you know, obnoxious at times. Sure. But when, because the price has come down quite a bit over the last year, considering okay. what it had peaked out at, but there was a time there that the Zillow estimate on the house was going up every month more than I could earn at my day job, my wife's day job, and YouTube combined. Wow. wow. Right? And I'm looking that at that, nuts. and I'm like, this is not, this is not realistic. This cannot. No, this, this can't not, continue. Right? Like, <laughs> this can't continue. And it, it didn't, right? And so, yeah. like. You know, at one point, you know, like I think there was probably like a hundred and fifty thousand dollars equity in this house after mm -hmm. like a year of being in it or something like that, and it was just like a stupid amount. And yeah, and now true. most of that has has like left that 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 estimate, but it's still dramatically higher. Like I mean, ten fifteen percent higher than what I paid for two years ago. You know, yeah. And even that's one of the reasons why I don't think I could afford it because I was already at my limit when I bought right. the house. Like I mean, it would it took you were everything scraping, I could do. yeah, everything, yeah, yeah. So I think that's an interesting thing because when I think about housing, one thing we got right on this channel is I called a housing crash in transactions. I think I was the first person to talk about the Fed broke housing. And I don't have a lot of good thoughts. I don't think transactions are coming back, right? In order to have transactions come back to five and a half, six million, which was our trend for years, we have to spark supply. Folks like yourself, folks like me who own homes have to be enticed and I'm not enticed paying, you know, an extra 200 grand or an extra 50 grand and doubling my interest rate. When you do the math, my mortgage payment would go up 300%. I'm like, nope, not even considering it. It's not even a consideration selling. Um, so I just don't see supply coming back. I just, I can't, I can't do the math and get there. Um, I, I, the only way I can really see a supply 
is coming from the builders. Like that's, that's the only that's the only place that I can. They're, so like, that I can they're like this much of the market, man. They just yeah. they just they don't build enough. They they can't right. And like you know, if you go back to like you know a time back in the early '80s, you would have been able to find a lot of builders. Yeah, true. You know, even I mean, even 2004, 2005, even, there's a lot right. of builders. Yeah, right. And this is this is something that I that that I I just think like it's hard to incorporate this into like the macroeconomic picture. But there was a time in which like the average dude, like he could work at a gas station, have a piece of property, stop by the lumberyard on your way home every day, and construct yourself a home. Right. Yeah. Okay. You're right. Th that that's something to think about. Like you know, an average dude could construct his own home. That doesn't happen today. How how is it that like you know, the builders are supposed to provide inventory if the if the average dude himself can't do it for himself, right? right. So yeah. there's there's no inventory coming from from that side of things. Like that's that's why I'm saying it's like the inventory has to come from the builders, and it's and right. it's and it's and it's not. Like I mean, I don't see it happening there. You know, you can recycle all the existing homes you want, right? But it doesn't provide any more inventory. Yeah, right. I mean, that's that's, you know, just because you have a rolling over gives you an opportunity to maybe buy a house because you can jump into the mix of transactions that are happening there. But, you know, you got a certain amount of people who want homes and you got a certain amount of homes that are available. That doesn't change without more homes. Right. You're In right. fact, the supply of people increases. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it's slowing down, it's still it increases. And now I also think about like, you know, something that um, mom had I had talked about when we were because we knew that we were coming on your show or, you know, I was coming on your show here. So we were just talking about real estate in general, but like the baby boomer population dying off, leaving all these homes like this is the big one that I hear. Right? Silver tsunami, the silver tsunami. Yeah, exactly. Right. So now all of a sudden we're going to have like, you know, the baby boomer population, which was a huge like concentration of people in a short amount of time that had been born, make it through the economy and kind of die off at the same time, leaving this flood of homes coming onto the market. This is kind of like the idea behind it. The only problem that I'm seeing with this is, is that just about every single person I know who has a house has multi-generations living in it, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's their kids or their parents, right? So at some point when this person passes away and leaves the house, there's already somebody there. Now, even if they don't get the house, they still need a place to live, right? So like, even if it's not that, if it's not them in their house, there's going to be somebody else who's replacing them. Yeah. Ultimately, they still need a place to live. So this doesn't really add a lot of inventory to the home. Even the silver tsunami thing, I don't think is going to quite play out the way that a lot of people are thinking it's going to. You know? No, I agree with you. I agree hundred percent. At the, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what are your thoughts about 2024 in general? Just uh, what do you see in front of us? Anything got you particularly nervous, excited? What do you think about 2024? Um, okay, so my predictions for 2024, this is really, I I, I really shouldn't do predictions because they come back and get me. You know? <laughs> but this is this is something that I really feel that is coming from, not from like me guessing, you know, but really coming from their own statements and documents and stuff that is coming not only from the Federal Reserve, but the Treasury. At some point in 2024, we are going to run into liquidity crisis, mm. right? I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know exactly how it's going to impact everything, but there's going to be an issue in there. And the reason why I keep bringing this up, right, is because there is articles, not some blogger out there or some YouTuber who's just talking about it. But I'm talking mainstream media, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, Reuters, all these guys 
had an article that they put out on the same day, or the same week, talking about the Treasury doing bond buybacks in 2024, and it's really the only time you ever hear about it. it was just on this one particular day throughout the, all the mainstream big-time like news outlets. You can go and you can find this information. There are people who have talked about it. And even just recently, there has been some 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 comments on it through some news articles talking about the Treasury coming back in to buy bonds. Mm. Why would they do this? This is like only a what one time in history or a couple of times in history have they ever bought their own bonds back? This is the United States Treasury, which everybody is like only thinks is a one way street. They issue out debt. They don't buy their own debt back. Like this is not something that is even a concept, you know, even a concept to a lot of people. They don't even know this is even possible, right? But now if you think about it, if we do run into a liquidity issue coming into, you know, into 2024, right? And you have the safest, most liquid asset in the entire world having issues, what is that going to do to the economy? It's going to screw it up bad, oh, yeah. right? Big time. So now... If there is any kind of issue within the bond market in which this says, man, these bonds are not selling, they are not liquid, the Treasury will step up and buy them right? and maintain the liquidity within the bond market. They would not be making this statement if they were not preparing for it, if they did not want a general view of people who do recognize this stuff to be informed of it ahead of time, but they do not put it out in the mainstream media because they don't want us knowing about it, mm. right? I mean, you yeah. think about it. Why, why wouldn't they talk about it? I mean, this is a big deal that's going to be hitting us. It's much like the repo facility and them talking about the repo facility before, you know, September of 2019, yeah. right? But when it hits, it's going to be a surprise. And if you prepared yourself for it, then it wouldn't be a surprise. And then it wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to combat it the way that they are going to, because people would have prepared themselves for this situation and their liquidity issues would be presenting themselves today, right? Yep. So now that's that's the major problem with the with the credible threat theories is that they yep. can't let us know on some of these things that are coming up. Yep. But that's one of them that I see is is the liquidity issue coming okay. in in 2024 and the Treasury buying their bonds back. Now, again, I don't know exactly what that'll look like. Also coming from the Federal Reserve is something very similar that they had put out statements to all the major banks out there, making sure that their balance sheet was sitting in a position in which that if they had any like withdrawals happening, that their assets that they are holding will not cause their balance sheets to be you know so flipped that they end up going out of business or whatever. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, they are basically saying, like, look at your assets and where they are right now. And if those things start to fall, whether or not your liabilities are going to be able to make your balance sheet off of that. Otherwise, you need to start adjusting your balance sheet today in order to deal with what's coming in the future. Now, they didn't explain that all out there, but that's kind of what I was reading out of this. So the Federal Reserve is telling the banks to look at their balance sheet and get those things prepared to deal with the liquidity issue at the same time the treasury is making statements about buying their own bonds back and this information is so quiet in the mainstream media it just drives me nuts i try to put the information out there but i can't find any like news articles or anybody else to really back up this stuff so i'm kind of left to just like hey man this is my prediction you know there you go well i love the fact what you're doing on your channel you're uh authentic you're educating uh you're 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 just reading so much where can people find you and follow you uh, so uneducated economist, if you type that into Google, you're going to find everything on me. Um, I'm pretty much active on YouTube. Um, you know, I 
have a full-time job. I have a family. I have this going on. And it's really hard to maintain being like on all the other social platforms. But I am on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And I have like a TikTok account. So I post shorts and stuff like that on there. So, you know, if you're into like some of the other social medias out there, I pretty much have an account everywhere. But I'm active on YouTube at Uneducated Economist. Yeah, do yourself a favor, Adam, follow him, subscribe to his channel. He is putting out a lot of stuff that is very, very helpful. You do lives, which I think is awesome uh, for the audience. Uh, Simon, I appreciate you. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas. And I look forward to shaking your hand in Vegas. It should be a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, I can't wait to meet you personally, Mike, man. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. There you go, bud. Take care.